0: Take your Bible tonight and join me in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40 uh, for the most important verses I believe in the Bible. And uh, tonight we come to Article 12, which is one near and dear to my heart, and that being the article that deals with Christian education. I have Feared getting to some of these latter articles because I uh, thought they would be so dry, so boring, so dull. I mean, talking about Christian education, uh, cooperation, uh, things like that is not nearly as exciting as talking about the Bible or Christology, the person and work of Christ. And yet, uh, as I worked through this particular article and looked at what we had in our statement, uh, both the article and the Bible has a lot to say about Christian education and in particular loving God with our mind. Uh, I'm fond of saying to our students at the seminary, we bring no honor to God by being stupid. And the fact of the matter is, we don't. And yet I usually follow it up by saying, but our churches are filled with stupid saints. And you say, well, that's not very nice. Well, if it's not true, then correct me. If it is true, then join hands with me and let's do something about it, because if anyone ought to have an active, aggressive mind, it ought to be the Christian who wants to know his God better and therefore love him more rightly. And this is again grounded in the very words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul and With all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and uh, the prophets. How does the article on education read in the Baptist faith, the message 2000? Christianity is the faith of enlightenment and intelligence. Now, we're going to see we have to clarify and define those words because one could think of enlightenment and they would think of the age of enlightenment, the age of reason. When supernaturalism was pushed to the sideline and kicked to the curb and rationalism and human reason was exalted, that is not what this article is saying at all. It is picking up on biblical terminology where you find the Bible speaking of our having an enlightened mind. So Christianity is the faith of enlightenment and intelligence. In Jesus Christ, abide all the treasures of wisdom. And knowledge, and those are complementary, they're not identical. Uh, all sound learning is therefore a part of our Christian heritage. The new birth opens all human faculties and creates a thirst for knowledge. I like that. I believe that. And indeed, if one does not have a thirst for the things of God, one has to wonder whether or not that person knows God, whether they even truly experience the new birth. Moreover, the cause of education in the kingdom of Christ is coordinate with the causes of missions and general benevolence. In other words, rightly thinking about God will lead us to rightly loving and caring for our neighbor, which then is going to usher in of necessity both missions on the one hand and ministries of mercy or general benevolence on the other. And it should receive, along with these, the liberal support of the churches. I'm fond of saying there's one time where you can be a liberal, and it's okay when it comes to the giving of your money. Be a extreme liberal in that particular context. Thus, an adequate system of Christian education is necessary to a complete spiritual program for Christ's people. And I believe that primarily Christian education is to take place in the home. It is then be complemented by what takes place in the church. By the way, you can make easy biblical arguments for that because God ordained the family and God ordained the church. Now, I'm a part of what is known as a para church entity. That is a seminary. And do I believe that though they're not found in scripture, there is a place for the Christian college and the Christian seminary? I do. And I think they can come alongside of the church and hear me well as a servant of and servant to the churches to assist them in the assignment of Christian education. But the seminaries, uh, the Christian colleges should never and can never take the place of what is to transpire in the local church. So again, an adequate system of Christian education is necessary to a complete spiritual program for Christ's people. Next paragraph in Christian education, there should be a proper balance between academic freedom and academic responsibility. So very quickly... Uh, in its second major paragraph, this article on education moves to the arena of the college and the seminary. This is not something you would readily apply to the church. When you think in terms of academic freedom, you think in terms of the academy, of the college, of the university, of the seminary. And I like, again, the, stat- the statement, there is to be a balance between academic freedom and academic responsibility. Freedom... In any orderly relationship of human life is always limited, and it is never absolute. In other words, uh, academic freedom is not the right to believe anything you want to and teach anywhere you want to. Now, I will fight for your right to believe whatever you want to believe. But that does not grant you the right, for example, to slip into this church and teach heresy and false doctrine and harm our church. That does not give you the right to slide in and sneak into my seminary, my college, and teach that which is false that would damage the body of believers there. No, you you have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. That does not grant you the right to teach anywhere you want to teach. Thus, the freedom of a teacher in a Christian school, college, or seminary is limited in three ways. Number one. By the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Number two, by the authoritative nature of the Scriptures. And number three, by the distinct purpose for which the school exists. And very quickly, when it comes to the seminary near here, uh, we exist as a seminary and college that serves the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is why we exist. Furthermore, under the authorization of a board of trustees, we have four confessional documents that all of my teachers must teach according to and not according with and not contrary to without mental reservation or hesitation to use some traditional language. One is the Baptist faith and message 2000. Every professor signs that he will teach in accordance with and not contrary to. Uh, They also signed the Abstract of Principles, which was the founding confession of faith for Southern Seminary in Louisville and then also for Southeastern Seminary when it was founded in 1950. Uh, We also require of our faculty that they sign the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and we also require them to sign the Denver Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. All of those, by the way, can be uh, accessed uh, at our website so that you can see that we proudly are a confessional institution that is not ashamed to declare clearly what it is that we believe and what it is that we're trying to teach and educate Concerning those who come and study at our school. Now, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has a number of scripture references related to the importance of education and of the mind. And in fact, I've given you a large number of these just again to reiterate, we bring no honor to God by not loving him with our mind. And so what do we find, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 10? By the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you find the Ten Commandments. Then immediately following the Ten Commandments, you find this instruction as they're preparing to go into the promised land. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, men, know the responsibility that falls on our shoulders. You're to do this all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. And then what follows is what is known as the Shema, the Hebrew confession of faith. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord, your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your strength and implied in the Hebrew concept of the heart is also the mind. And these words, which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when four times look at it. Number one, when you sit in your house, number two, when you walk by the way. Number three, when you lie down. And number four, when you rise up. Now, brothers and sisters, best I can tell, we don't do much more than sit, walk, lie down, and get up. Basically, the the Bible is telling us that we should be in the mindset of teaching our children, our grandchildren, all the time. Again, as we raised our four sons, I always looked for what I call teachable moments. I was always on the lookout, basically 24-7, for something that might happen that would give me the opportunity to show them how the Lordship of Christ and how the Word of God would apply to that particular kind of situation. It was just the ebb and flow of life. It wasn't that we were sitting them down and giving them a theological lecture, though I'm not opposed to that. It was simply we were trying to show them that the the truths of Scripture apply in all sorts of circumstances, in all sorts of situations. So when are you to be thinking about teaching your kids the things of God? When they are sitting, when they are walking, when they are lying down, and when they are getting up. And then Deuteronomy says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets, the word phylacteries, between your eyes. Or you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So shall it be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. The end of Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 12 and 13. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who's within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe All the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. You jump to Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 where they are once more being familiarized with the law of God. Then he, that is Ezra, then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and the women those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Deuteronomy eight eight. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Going back to Job twenty eight, twenty eight, and to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The first psalm, which serves in many ways as the prologue to all 150 psalms, starts with the life of the blessed man in contrast to the life of the cursed man. And what does the Bible say? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel, the knowledge of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, his joy, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Well, what will he be like, David? He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And I note that this particular psalm is not in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 references, though I think it certainly should have been. And then Psalm 19, the Word of God psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect Your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 119, verse 11. Again, a word of God. psalm. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Proverbs three thirteen. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Proverbs four one and two. Hear my children, the instruction of a father. And give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, do not forsake my law. Proverbs eight eleven. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Proverbs fifteen fourteen. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. And then a moment ago. And as an aside, by the way, every summer I have the honor of teaching a a, a large number of high school and early college students at a thing called student. Uh, Leadership University in Orlando, Florida And my assignment is to do apologetics And to teach them how to think like a Christian In a uh, counter-Christian culture And one of the first things I do Is to challenge them to love God with their mind And I will make that argument from the text I read a moment ago And there you have again Matthew 22, 37 through 40 Later I will go, as you will see in a moment To texts like uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 And also 1 Peter 3 15 to just help them understand that the Bible has a lot to say, not only about loving God with our hearts, but also loving God with our mind. Of course, the great commission text, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go and make followers of Jesus, disciples of all the nations. How baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them. To observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. 2 Corinthians ten three through 5 a great text. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Well, Paul, what do you mean by strongholds? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And again, to my amazement, that particular text is not in the Baptist Faith and Message article. Uh, Philippians four eight. finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy... Meditate on these things Colossians 289 beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a body Colossians 3 1 and 2 if then you were raised with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God what does that mean paul it means this set your mind on things above not on things on the earth second 2 timothy 2:15 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed how paul rightly dividing the word of truth Second Timothy three fourteen through seventeen, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures given by inspiration of God, it is literally God breathed, and it is profitable for what, Paul? Doctrine. Reproof. Correction. Instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. James one five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all liberally, without reproach, and it will be given to him. James three seventeen. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then perhaps the key apologetic verse in the Bible, 1 Peter 3, 15, but set apart, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense. Now, you ought to mark the word defense, and out beside it, you can write the word apology. Apology, not in the sense of I'm sorry. It's the Greek word apologia. We get our word apologetics from it. It has the idea of giving a defense, giving a reason, explaining to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, and you do it with meekness and with fear. And so all of that to say, the Bible has a lot to say about the mind. The Bible has a lot to say about loving God with the mind and knowing God and understanding God and then taking that knowledge and applying it to life through wisdom. Through wisdom. So with all of that, What can we say, then, about us as a people when it comes to education? Well, I love my first statement. Baptists are a peculiar people. And I'm not asking for commentary tonight. I'm just noting that, and we'll move on. According to the BFNM, a Christian view of education expresses a doctrinal commitment. In fact, a doctrinal understanding of education is not strange once a person considers the history of Baptists, particularly in America. First... Baptists formed their first church in America, by the way, in Rhode Island in 1638. They then established their first college, Rhode Island College, now Brown University, in 1765. You said, well, I didn't know Brown University was a Baptist school. Well, it really isn't anymore. It's a pagan school. Uh, it's a school full of false teaching. In fact, almost all the Ivy League schools were initially founded Uh, As schools to train ministers for the propagation of the gospel, including Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Brown, all now bastions of infidelity and false teaching and, and heresy. Tragically, that's where Brown is today as well. But that's not how she started. Second. Concerns about doctrinal teaching by educators precipitated all three editions of the Baptist Faith and Message, 1925, 63, and 2000. You say, how so? Well, in 1925, there was a controversy called evolution, and hence the statement was set forth to deal with that. In 1963, it was the doctrinal teachings of a professor ...at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary who denied the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis... ...who said that God did not tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, that Abraham misunderstood... ...and it was the result of his pagan background that caused him to not rightly understand what God was asking of him to do. And then in the year 2000, the BFNM that was set forth clarified a number of issues. The inspiration of the Bible, the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus... The substitutionary nature of the atonement and ethical issues like abortion and uh, homosexuality. What then are the distinctives of education according to this particular article? And I just called again a typo. It should be not Article 20, but Article 12. We highlight three of these for you first. The Baptist faith and message affirms what we could call a Christocentric understanding of education. That is, Baptists believe that Christian education centers In and on Christ. Indeed, the first four sentences of the education article, original to the 1925 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message, but omitted in the 1963 edition, set forth a proper theology of education. And so they were put back in. The BF&M claims first, Christianity is the faith of enlightenment and intelligence. In other words, Rather than advocating anti-intellectualism, Christ commanded his followers to love God with all their minds, Matthew 22, 37. Further, in the Bible, the term enlightenment means usually revelation. Thus, the statement is saying Christianity is a revelatory enlightenment of the mind. We are informed in ways that we otherwise could not be informed apart from God revealing it clearly to us. Thus, the Bible again underscores the life of the mind. We love God with our mind. Indeed, the renewing of our mind leads to transformed living. Romans twelve two. In the context of spiritual warfare fought in the realm of the mind, Paul challenges Christians to, quote, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians ten five. Thus again, Philippians 2, 5. We're to seek and cultivate what? The mind of Christ. Now, I can't stay here long, but I just throw out a question for all of us to consider tonight. What do you read? Well, first of all, do you read? I mean, unfortunately, we live in an age where most adults don't read anything. And so let's assume that you're in that small category of adults who do read some things. Well, I guess I can applaud that at least a little bit. But question, what do you read? I mean, what kind of stuff? Or maybe, if I want to be mean, and Charlotte's not here tonight so I can be mean, what kind of junk do you read? I mean, what kind of garbage do some of us fill our minds with? I mean, how many of us in this room can say? And I can use well, you're a seminary I don't give a rip what I am. The same cuts for all of us. Do you saturate your mind with the things of God? Do you read the Bible? Do you read books by those who love the Bible? Do you read C.S. Lewis? Do you read Francis Schaeffer? Do you read Calvin and Luther and uh, Augustine? Do you? So I don't even know who they are. Well, shame on you. They're the great saints of the of the faith. Missionary biographies. Oh my goodness. Lottie Moon. Bill Wallace, Jim Elliott, William Carey, and I'm Judson. I could go on for a long time. A long time. Men and women who did it, the extraordinary, though they were very ordinary people, I want to tell you, it will inspire you, it will enlighten you, it will build your faith. But again, tragically, you know, some of the stuff that we buy, even at our, our, our Christian bookstores, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. I mean, are we really... Going to settle for the fact that we're intellectual, spiritual, lightweights? I mean, are you really satisfied with that? And if so, how? Why? You say, well, I don't know what to read. I'll tell you what. You email me. You email me. www.dakin.edu. You email me. And I won't start off with a big, fat, systematic theology that's, you know, a thousand pages long. I won't do that. But I'll start, I'll I'll send you a list of just some very basic things you can start reading to get your, you know, yeah, let's be fair, I want to be fair. You, You have to crawl before you walk, before you run. I'm aware of that. So for some of you that are here tonight, maybe you'd be honest enough to say, you know, I've just been sitting. Okay, would you be willing to start crawling? I'll give you some stuff to crawl through, and then after we crawl for a while, I'll give you some things to walk through. And after you walk for a while, I'll give you some things to run through. And hopefully, one of these days, you'll become, by following the analogy, a Christian marathoner who's in it for the long haul and shows up day after day after day to saturate yourself in the important things of the work and words of God. There's no reason for us not to love. In fact, I'll just say it, and I'll move on. It is a sin Not to love God with your mind. Next statement then in Christ abides all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. Dallas Willard, who serves as a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. He maintains that following Christ entails a belief that, quote, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. Close quote. I like that. Now, that's not enough. But but what it says is true. He does affirm the deity of Christ as he ought, yet following Christ means following the world's smartest individual. Think about that. When I'm following Jesus, I'm following the smartest man who ever lived. Our term university literally means unity in diversity. Baptists concur with the founders of modern European universities that Christ. The embodiment of truth provides what Dallas Baptist University professor David Noggle Noggle, calls a, quote, seamless robe of interdisciplinary thought. You say, what in the world does he mean by that? The next statement. Christ reigns as master of history. He's the master of art. He's the master of literature. He's the master of all fields of science, business, healing arts, legal thought, technology. In fact, I know it's in my notes somewhere because I say it so many times. Arthur Holmes was correct. All truth is God's truth wherever you find it. So as Christians, should we be fearful of investigating any realm of reality? No. Am I scared of the biologist? No. The chemist? No. The astronomer? No. Not scared of any of them. Because all truth is God's truth wherever it is found, and so we of all people ought to be pursuing the truth wherever it leads, knowing though ultimately that all that we learn and know must be filtered through the purifying waters of an infallible and inerrant Bible. Next paragraph then, the BF&M asserts, quote, all sound learning is therefore a part of our Christian heritage, close quote. Thus, all truth is God's truth, since God himself is the truth. In contrast, Satan, as the father of lies, John 8:44 actively opposes truth. The Christian faith, though, opposes a false dichotomy of the sacred and the secular. In fact, years ago, and we don't have a minister of worship right now, so I don't mind picking on one. We was I was in a church and the minister of worship one Sunday said, folks, come on now, let's get with it. After all, all that really matters is what you do on Sunday. The other six times, I'm quoting him. I mean, I nearly had the big one right there up on the platform. What you do the rest of the week doesn't matter. All that matters is what you do on Sunday. And I mean, I, just, I nearly leapt for him to strangle him, to, to, to kill him before he taught more heresy. I mean, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you saying? You have lost your mind. No, 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 no. There's no dichotomy in the biblical way of thinking when it comes to the, the sacred and the secular. Fact of the matter is, you are involved in a sacred duty every day of the week, no matter what your vocation may happen to be. You have a sacred obligation and a sacred duty as a school teacher, as a banker, as a lawyer, well maybe not a lawyer, but as a banker and as a doctor and whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you do, there is a sacredness to that vocation. In fact, sometimes our enemies see things even more clearly than we. Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher in Germany, who, by the way, was the favorite philosopher of a man named Adolf Hitler. So you'll see a connection there. But even Nietzsche understood and said, and I quote, Christianity is a system, a consistently thought out and complete view of things. Now, he thought it was a messed up system system. But he recognized that Christianity indeed advocates what we can call a a coherent, consistent, world view way of thinking. Thus it is consistent. It is more than the salvation of souls. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Indeed, a a, the Christian faith is a complete interpretation of the universe. It is a world view. It is a specific way of viewing life. Next statement, the new birth then opens all human faculties and creates a thirst for knowledge. But according to Paul, rejecting God indeed affects the mind. Romans 121, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Theologians refer to this nonsense thinking as the, quote, noetic effects of sin Comes from the Greek word for the word mind. Thus in the new birth, the Spirit counteracts this aspect of the fall into sin by opening the faculty of the human mind to think rightly. In other words, true or false. Unbelievers think. True. True. In fact, some of them think very well. Unbelievers do think. However, all of their thinking is tainted and infected. By sin, they they do think, but they think wrongly. They think incorrectly. The 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 the, the fact of the matter is salvation and, and this thing called sanctification is enabling you and me more and more and more progressively to overcome what we call the noetic effects of sin, so that because we are pursuing. And cultivating the mind of Christ, we are thinking more and more his thoughts, and therefore we're thinking more and more rightly. But again, if you're not immersed in Scripture, you can't think the thoughts of Christ. You, you may want to, you may long to, but you can't. You can only think like Christ if you know Christ. And you know Christ how? Through the Word. We'll move to a new category. Second. The faith, the message sets forth a kingdom vision of education. The risen Christ commanded the church to teach, Matthew 28. Like evangelism and missions, Christ presented the teaching mandate to the local church and to individual believers. Thus, Christian education, as I said earlier, begins in the home, Deuteronomy 6. Moreover, the church has a mandate to teach members. In 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Paul commanded Timothy to teach faithful men who then had the responsibility to teach others. Thus, Paul uses teaching as an evangelistic methodology and badges established educational institutions as church partners. I like that to assist churches in the causes of missions and general benevolence. Once again, these institutions are servants to not substitutes for the church. Third, the Baptist faith and message advocates a balance between academic freedom and uh, academic responsibility. Freedom is not absolute. Freedom always requires parameters. Again, the BFNM identifies three limitations to the freedom of a Christian educator. One, the preeminence of Christ. Two, the authoritative, the authoritative nature of scripture. And three, the distinct purpose mission of the educational institution. But the difference between secular and Christian education is seen most clearly, I believe, in the following. The role of the Holy Spirit in Christian education, that's number one. The unique content to be taught, that's number two. And the different presuppositions regarding truth. And again, we could chase that a long time just to say tonight all of us have presuppositions. All of us have preconceived ideas that influence the way we think and see uh, the way reality in life is. And so what we want when it comes to education is to have the spirit being our teacher and the one who enlightens us. We recognize there's to be a unique Christian content, biblical content to what we study. And thirdly, we come at this with a presupposition. Many fold, but at least in one All truth is God's truth wherever we find it And truth is most clearly revealed in the word of God And therefore those provide, provide the parameters that will guide me In any and all endeavors of education Thus, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit Believers are shown the truth of God's word Both secular and Christian educators may use similar methodologies They most certainly do often But the basic issues related to truth and truth claims make them indeed quite different. Thus, Christian education is Christian when teachers and learners are committed to the Bible's authority and sufficiency. And when they are dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in the learning environment. It is Christian when the purpose and goals are honoring to the Lord and his kingdom. It is Christian when the curriculum is developed from the teachings of the word of God and from an understanding of biblical theology. It is Christian when there is an overall understanding and perspective that God is in control and that teachers and learners are sincerely seeking to fulfill God's will and purpose in all things. Thus, to move to close, the purpose of Christian education is to bring people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's step one. To train them in a life of discipleship and to equip them for service in the world today. That's step two and three. It is to develop in believers a biblical worldview that will assist them in making life decisions from a Christian perspective. Thus, the purpose, the goals, and the values of Christian education are derived from a theological foundation that is biblically based. Worship, evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, and service. Are all drawn from scriptures and are included in any purpose and value statement for any kind of authentic and true Christian education. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to love you with our whole being and that includes our mind. And Lord, I guess it would be expected that given what you've called me to do, I would see a premium on this and yet Lord, to be, to be fair, I believe there's a balance here. I think we must love you with our heart, with our inner self, with, with that emotional side that is drawn to you with our, as Jonathan Edwards said, our affections. There's everything right with that. The Lord, for too many of us, we stop there and we short circuit the process of discipleship and conforming to the image of Christ by not loving you rightly with our mind. And, Lord, ever since I was called into ministry 30 years ago, I've been troubled by what I've seen in the church as so much shallow, sloppy thinking. And I'm often discouraged because so many of our people don't love you well with their minds and they don't think Christianly. When push comes to shove, they're pragmatist. They operate on experience and intuition and the whim of the moment. And Lord, we should always first and foremost ask the question, what does the Bible say? What does God's word say about this particular issue? Lord, in most cases, there is a clear, precise word. And in others, there is a principle that will guide us into good, godly, wise decision making. We don't honor you, Lord, by being stupid. We honor you by loving you with our minds. May we then be a people who rightly knows and rightly loves the God who is truth and has revealed all truth that we need in his word. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.